those of you who are visiting, uh, whether here in person or online, I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this uh, December morning. It feels like winter is finally starting to arrive here in Wisconsin. Um, I'm personally thankful for the seasons. I just hope it's not too long or too deep of a cold uh, for this winter that's before us. Before we begin, I, I want to mention there's a word in this passage uh, that being from Maine, being from New England, I, I struggle to pronounce. So I just want to get it out of the way. Um, there's an R right in the middle of this word. Uh, it's, it's the Mount, Mount Carmel. When I go slow enough, I could say it, but when I'm talking fast, it uh, might not work out so well. So uh, just be prepared for that. I just want to get that dis- distraction out of there. It's hard for me, like comma and garments. So uh, Carmel is a little bit hard. I, I've been practicing, but in case I, met, you know, I just butcher it, just accept it. It's, I, I was born, I was, I was raised that way. So um, just so you, if you're wondering what, what did he say, it's, 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 it's the mount that we're, the passage takes place at. But now that we got that out of the way, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer and seek his wisdom and discernment. Holy Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. You are one and you are the creator of all things. You are most holy and we come before you as sinners. And Father, we thank you that we are able to come before you as sinners who have been forgiven, sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's on this basis that we come before you seeking instruction, seeking wisdom this morning. Help us to hear your word that you have before us. Help us to hear your voice that is written uh, to us uh, by your Spirit in 1 Kings 18. May we submit ourselves to your instruction. May we be focused this morning. Help us to lay down our anxieties, our burdens, our worries, our despairs, our struggles before you. And help us to be focused and attentive so that we may hear your word, that your Spirit may convict us, that we would respond appropriately, that we be edified, equipped, and sanctified, so that we can, as we go out from here, glorify you in all that we do. We ask this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever wondered what is necessary in order to experience the grace of God in your life? Right? We're not talking about the common grace that falls on both the righteous and the wicked, but we're talking about the blessing of his presence in your life, to experience the assurance and blessing that we are told that we ought to have as those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. How are we able to know and experience the grace of God firsthand in such a way that we have confidence in death, confidence in affliction, and peace in all circumstances? Well, 1 Kings 18 is going to help us answer that question. And if you haven't turned there already, please go ahead and turn there. Have it open so you can follow along as we go through it. Um, And if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles underneath uh, the chairs uh, around you. If you recall, God's covenant people, they are in the midst of a drought. God has removed rain via the prophet of Elijah from his people for three years and six months. And we know this because Jesus in Luke 4 tells us it was three years and six months as well as uh, James tells us it's three years, six months, and our text says it's three years. But during this time, when God has disciplined his people, we have to remember that God is still, God is still his people's God. 
He hasn't forsaken his people as they have forsook him. They are still his covenant people. They are still in a covenant relationship with him. But due to their sin and idolatry, God has removed his grace of reign from them. And until they confront their sin and deal with it, his reign, the reign that comes from him, his grace will not return. So the chapter before us this morning will show us through Elijah and Israel what must be done in order to remove the discipline of God that perhaps exists in our lives or the, the drought that exists in our lives to bring back the joy of his grace, to once again experience the abundant life that Jesus says that he came to bring to those who believe in him. So we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 16. They're going to help set the stage for our main event um, in verses 20 through uh, 40. And it's going to help us, uh, it's going to introduce us to a faithful man by the name of Obadiah. And the first two verses of chapter 18, we have the setting of our text. Just like last week, uh, verse 1, we have the setting. Elijah comes out onto the scene, but out of nowhere he confronts Ahab with the word of God saying, hey, as long as Yahweh lives, it's not going to rain until I say so. And so again, we have here in verse 1, in the third year of the, of the drought, uh, after many days of Elijah spending time up in Zarephath and Phoenicia, uh, the word of God comes to Elijah and says, hey, it's, it's time to deal with this. You need to go meet Ahab. Verse 2 reminds us that Samaria, the whole region, is under a severe drought. It's been over three years at this point with no rain. The uh, Baal has been unable to bring rain upon the land. And so in verse 3, we're told of Obadiah. This is not the minor prophets. This is a different Obadiah, so we must not confuse the two. We're told in verse 3 that Obadiah, he was a man who served um, in a high-up position in the administration of Ahab. He oversaw the house of Ahab, evil king Ahab. This is this Obadiah. And, and so we would think that maybe by association, well, Obadiah must be evil and unrighteous too, but that's not what the text says. In verse 3, it says, he feared Yahweh greatly. Yes, he served in the house, but he feared Yahweh greatly. He's commended here. There's nothing in the text that says that um, Obadiah is um, a he, that there's a negative a judgment from Scripture upon Obadiah for faithfully serving in the evil house of King Ahab. And it's an unusual thing for sure. But remember, Paul tells us that even in Nero's house evil emperor Nero, there were faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. But do note that while he's serving in this position, because of his fear for Yahweh, he uses this position for righteousness as much as he is able to do so. Right? Verse 4, we are told he hid the prophets from the evil queen Jezebel. When she sought to cut down the prophets of Yahweh, he hid them in caves, a hundred of them, by fifties. So, two groups of 50s in, in the cave, and you do the math there, he hid them from Jezebel, and he gave them food and water. So he used his position. Yes, he is serving an evil king, and he does so faithfully, but he uses that position as he fears Yahweh greatly for righteousness. So Obadiah, he's been sent by Ahab. Ahab and Obadiah, they're on a mission to find grass. Grass is, is dying out, right? I know we're not used to that up here in Wisconsin. In other places, it gets yellow during a drought. And I'm sure it's really yellow right now in, in Samaria. And so Ahab's like, Obadiah, you take this half of the land, I'll take this half of the land, and we'll go find some grass. And as Obadiah is, is looking, he comes across Elijah. And Elijah in verse 8 says, hey, go tell Ahab I want to meet him. 
It's time for us to resolve this issue. But Obadiah doesn't want to. Obadiah knows how hard Ahab has been looking for Elijah these past three years. And he doesn't want to go to this king because he knows he's evil. And he doesn't want to tell him. In fact, let's go ahead and read Obadiah's response to Elijah in verses 9 through 14. Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As Yahweh your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of Yahweh will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared Yahweh from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. So here, Elijah, he, he doesn't rebuke Obadiah. He doesn't say, no, you're wrong. Elijah knows that Ahab's been looking for him. Elijah knows that what Obadiah is saying is true. But Elijah tells him, he makes an oath to, to Yahweh. He says, as Yahweh lives, I will be here. I'm not going to go anywhere. Trust me. And this encourages Obadiah to go get Ahab, and he gets Ahab. So let's read verses 17 and 19 and read of the exchange between Ahab and Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. This right here, it's like a typical exchange on Twitter nowadays. One person calling the other a troublemaker. Even within the church, we have this, right? No, you're the one that's in the wrong. No, you are. You're the divisive one. You're the one causing the trouble. But in this case, we know that Elijah is, is right here. And Elijah is clear on this. Ahab thinks Elijah's a troublemaker, and, and you can't really blame him if you're evil like him, right? Because by Elijah's word, the drought has come, right? Elijah is the means of the trouble when we consider the drought to be the trouble, but he's not the source of it. Ahab's unrighteousness is. Ahab's sin is. His idolatry is the source of trouble. And that's why Elijah says, no, you are the troublemaker. You and your father have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh. You have followed after Baal. Not only did you not walk in the ways of David, but you married that evil queen Jezebel as if it was a light thing. You've engaged openly, willfully, and idolatry. We need to understand that the act of calling out on righteousness, that is not the source of trouble. The one who desires to commit the unrighteousness is the troublemaker. That is the source of trouble. And I know today in society, that's like backwards. We don't believe that, right? I mean, often when people want to riot, when they burn down buildings and loot, the, the, the way of thinking is like, well, let them. Let them vent their anger. Why, why hold them accountable for this injustice? Well, because we want justice. We want righteousness. Well, you're just causing trouble. Just allow them to burn down your store. Why are you trying to defend it? Just let it happen. You can fix that anyway. That's not justice. That's not righteousness. Nor is it causing trouble when you're standing up for righteousness and justice. 
Unfortunately, this same behavior is found within the church. Often, this is how righteous judgment is viewed. When people call out evil, when they call out false teachings, idolatry, and the people who uh, preach these things, people will say, you're just causing trouble. Why can't you just let the Holy Spirit deal with them? Well, the Holy Spirit, one, uses faithful men of God and women to deal with them. He uses the Word of God to rebuke, correct, and admonish others. They'll say, but you're just causing division. Why can't you be a peacemaker? As if you can have peace when unrighteousness and sin and idolatry exist within the body. A peacemaker is the one who calls out unrighteousness. A peacemaker is like a doctor who says, there is a tumor in your body, we need to remove it. And until we do, you're not going to be healthy. But you're just causing trouble. You're just going to cause pain. Well, it's not going to compare to the pain that's going to exist in the body if you allow the tumor to remain. So those who are faithful often to God's word, even within the bride of Christ, are often called troublemakers. But if you find that to you, if people say you're just, you know, they don't think well of you, take heart. Jesus in Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if you're following a teacher, uh, a Bible study leader, a, a, a preacher, and everybody thinks well of this person, even Oprah thinks well of that person, that's a red flag. Because when you preach the gospel, the world will not think well of you. People will hate you. That story I, I, that was shared with me, that I shared with you of Nina's Deli, people love the deli, right? V very well received, people love the deli, they love the owners, until BLM came along, and then until they started preaching Christ, and they started preaching the word of God. Then all of a sudden, people hated them. People weren't speaking well of them. And that's what happens when you're faithful to God's word. They'll call you a troublemaker. Well, yeah, I mean, you know what? Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, right? He came to divide the sheep from the goats. He came to divide truth from untruths, from false religion and true religion. So if you're called that, be encouraged. Jesus says, because if, 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 you, if, you if people think well of you, you, you should be like reflecting right now, like, oh man, every, everybody likes me. Like everybody, like, not, not just the people in the church, but even non, like everyone likes me. I don't have problems with anyone. You, you should wonder if you preach faithfully the word of God, if you practice it faithfully, there should be some kind of pushback, even in America, so I think especially in America nowadays. So Elijah, after correcting Ahab's gross misjudgment, tells him, right, and he's telling this king, right, this is king, this is sovereign king Ahab over Israel. But again, Elijah is serving the sovereign God over all things. He says, hey, gather the people and let's meet at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, the prophets who eat at your evil wife's table, who have fellowship with. Invite them and let's deal with this. So verses 20 through 40 show us what unfolds here. And when we're given the scene, now Mount Carmel, it, it sits in the, the Carmel mountain range uh, on the northern border of Israel by the sea and on the, by the southern edge of the Phoenician country. So if you remember, uh, Jezebel is a Sidonian, which is from Phoenicia, and this is right along the border of the, where Baal's homeland in Phoenicia is and Yahweh's promised land of Israel. So it's probably a shared a uh, site of veneration, a shared holy site between the two religions. It sits close to 1,700 feet above sea level, and if you're spending time out at King Ahab's winter home in Jezreel, as you cross the valley, you would see it way off in the distance, just sticking up above the horizon. And this is where they are gathering. 
all of Israel, and it's not everybody in Israel, more than likely it's, it's the leaders of Israel and, and then the representatives of all of the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, along with a, a portion of Ahab's army. And then the 450 of prophets of Baal are there, and the 400 Asherah prophets, they're not mentioned here. Uh, they, maybe they are there, but they're not mentioned for whatever reason in the text, for whatever reason they didn't show up. We don't know, just that the 450 prophets, they're the ones that are mentioned. But note in verse 22 how Elijah describes himself. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now he's saying this with boldness, confidence, courage. He's saying this before a king and people who want to cut him down. He does so like Bravely. Next week, when we look at chapter 19, he's going to say this twice. And the two times he says it, he's going to say it. I, even I, am, am left of Yahweh's prophets. He says this twice in, in chapter 19, but then in chapter 19, he doesn't say it with confidence. He doesn't say it with boldness. He says it as in despair and desperation. He's lonely. He's depressed in chapter 19. And he's, in chapter 19, he's fearful for his life. And he says that in chapter 19 when the prophets of Baal are around him, when King Ahab is in striking distance of him. But now here, when he's confronting the prophets of Baal, and he's confronting King Ahab, for whatever reason, right now, by the power of Yahweh, he's emboldened. He's just like, it's just me. It's just me and all y'all. And so we have one prophet of Yahweh, so many against one. And often, this is the case when you stand for righteousness. The masses aren't often on your side. But when he who numbered the stars in their hour of creation is on your side, you are never in the minority. And we must always remember that because it can and it will feel lonely. And we'll talk more about that next week when Elijah deals with that. In verse 21, we get the question at hand. Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Either Yahweh is God, and if so, then Baal is nothing. Or Baal is God and Yahweh is nothing. So Elijah, he poses this question not because he's wondering. He knows. But he's trying to challenge the people. He, remember, his whole aim in ministry is to prove Yahweh is God and there are no other gods. Not simply that Baal is a false god, but that there are no other gods. It's Yahweh and him alone. And Elijah does this confidently because he's been commissioned for this moment. He's been tasked by Yahweh to come to Mount Carmel and to do this. We must not think that Elijah is putting God to the test here. Right? We must not misunderstand that, be like, well, Elijah put God to the test in Mount Carmel. No, he didn't put God to the test. Right? He's not doing this on a whim or spontaneously, thinking, well, I'm just going to appeal to God's reputation, and he's going to defend himself miraculously. No, He's in this moment because Yahweh has said, hey, you need to go to Ahab, and we need to resolve this, and this is how we are going to do it. So Elijah is doing this out of faith. So Elijah proposes a way to determine which of the two opinions that the people are lumping between is right, that of Elijah and the fathers of Israel or that of Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. In verses 23-24, Elijah describes this. Each party will get a bull to prepare upon wood and offer it to the respect of God. And whichever God responds with fire by consuming the offering, he is God. And remember, we talked about Baal. He's the god of rain, but he's also the god of st storms. He's a storm god. We have uh, depictions of him from archaeological digs of 
a bale holding a, a rod of thunder in one hand and a spear of lightning in the other. So he can consume this offering with a bolt of lightning. That's why a fire would be an acceptable um, evidence of Baal. So Elijah, he gives the prophets of Baal in verse 25. He says, you go first. We have these two bulls. You pick which bull you want. Your choice. You go first. And essentially, he's given them as much opportunity and as much time as they need. He wants the prophets of Baal, these false prophets, to show themselves. He doesn't want to take away any time or any advantage that they might have to really show who they are to the people of Israel. And so this starts around about 9-ish o'clock in the morning. And initially, until noon, uh, the prophets of Baal, they do their usual thing. Note their behavior starting in verse 26. They're crying aloud. They're limping around. And this limping around really means like a, like a hobbling. You know, like you might see like Native American dancers do like a, like a hobbling around uh, a, a fire or something. That's what they're doing. They're, they're hobbling around. They're limping around. And they do this for hours. And Elijah mocks them. And he mocks them. He's not making this up. When he mocks them, he says, well, maybe Baal's on a journey. Or maybe Baal's in the bathroom. He's relieving himself, right? Like a parent hiding from their kids in, in their you know, in the sanctuary, try to get some peace and quiet, right? Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, right? And these were actual beliefs that people had in Baal. Sometimes if it didn't rain, it was because Baal was relieving himself, or he was on a journey, or he was asleep. And so they had to wake him up. So Elijah mocks them. And then in verses 20 and 29, they only increase the chaos, their disorder. It's almost like in the mockery, they're like, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe we do need to wake up Baal. Maybe we need to act louder. In fact, let's get the blood going. Let's start cutting ourselves. And this is a practice that some sects of Islam practice. They cut themselves and, and they allow the blood to gush out. They're, 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 they're dancing around. They're crying now. It turns into a rave. They're raving around to try to catch the attention of Baal, to try to manipulate his will to come down and consume this offering that they have prepared before him. When you see this kind of behavior, especially in Christian churches, you need to think of this moment. When you see faithful believers raving in worship services, crying aloud hysterically, shaking on the ground, or even cutting themselves, if they do this, you need to be thinking of this moment and go, that seems paganistic. That doesn't seem Christian. And you're right, because it's not. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, our God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. This is not how Christians behave. But maybe you're thinking, well, in Samuel, David, we talked about this. David danced before the Lord, right? Coming back, bringing the ark into Jerusalem, he danced before. Yes, he did. Again, it's not a worship service. Two, he's not doing it to bend the will of God. He's not dancing to catch the eye of God. He's doing it in response because of his experience with God already. Or what about Elijah last week? Didn't he, when he prayed over the dead boy, wasn't he stretching himself multiple times over the dead boy and as he prayed to bring him back to life? Yes. But why did Yahweh answer the prayer? Was it because of what Elijah was doing? No. It was because of the prayer. Yahweh heard his voice and answered it. What Elijah was doing was just his own physical response to his inner grief, his inner sorrow. He wasn't using that to catch God's eye or to bend his will to see him, to waken him from his slumber. No, but that's what the Baal prophets are doing here. And that's what Christians today, like Bethel, Hillsong, Stephen Furtick, his church, they practice this. 
They will say you just need to allow the Spirit to take over your body. You want God to answer your prayer. You want to know Him. You want to feel His presence. You just got to let go. You just got to allow your body to take over, allow the energy of this place to take control of your body, and then you'll see God work. As if we need to do special things to bend the will of God or to catch His eye. There's only one way for us to experience God, to experience his grace, to know his presence. And it's not a mystery. Like Jen Johnson of Bethel, she wants you to think it's a mystery. She'll say that if you, if you stick to scripture, that's an intellectual, this is, these are her words, intellectual insecurity. That if you stick to the word of God, that's intellectual insecurity. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. You got to go off the map. And just got to trust the Holy Spirit. That's foolishness. That's pagan talk. That's talk of a false teacher. To know God's presence in our lives, to know his, his grace, it is not a mystery. And praise God, it's not a mystery. Praise God, it's straightforward. That has been made plain. That you don't need somebody behind a pulpit to explain this to you. You don't need a priest who knows Latin and to speak Latin to you. And praise God that we have his word in our language, right? I mean, praise God that we have people who are working to translate his word in native languages. Because his word, when we can read it, it's plain. We can understand it. Which means we can know how to have him in our life. We can know we have assurance. It is not a mystery. And Elijah models this for us. Elijah, he gives the prophets until it was time for the oblation. That's the evening sacrifice in verse 29. So all day long, the prophets of Baal, they're doing this insanity. They're doing this lunacy. And Elijah gives them that time until it came time for the evening offering. And he says, people, come near. Right? He doesn't want to hide anything. He doesn't want people to think that he's pulled some magic trick on them, that maybe he's set up the altar in a way that can cause fire, whatever. He's holding, he, he's not hiding. Just like, this is like me opening up scripture and saying, hey, you guys open up scripture, see the word of God, come near to the word of God, and see what's here. See what is plain before you. Elijah's like, come near. I want you to see this. Do not miss this. Because this is important. Why? Because eternity is at stake. Faithfulness is at stake. Yahweh's glory is going to be here. So come near. Elijah repairs the altar. He gathers 12 stones to represent each of the tribes of Israel even though it's only the 10 tribes of Israel that are, are, are there, so that must have kind of maybe stung a little bit, like, man, we're a divided nation still. He digs a trench, and maybe with, at the time, before the water comes, they're probably wondering, why is he digging a trench? This trench can hold two seahs. The sea is seven quarts, so 14 quarts. You do the math, that's three and a half gallons that this trench can hold. Well, after he digs a trench, he said, hey, go take these jars, fill them up with water, and, and pour them over the offering. Not just once, not just twice, Three times. So, so much water that the trench itself is filled. So, three and a half gallons of water in the trench is run off the offering, as well as all the other water that remains on top of the altar. Now, maybe you're wondering if you're, you're a skeptic, and it's good to be skeptical. There's a healthy cynicism that we, sh- we ought to have, it helps us to discern things. But maybe you're thinking, this is a drought. Where's the water coming from? Right? Some, some believe this story is made up just simply because he has water. What does it say there's no water anywhere? And he's in the presence of King Ahab. And the king surely probably has water with him to drink. The River Jordan is probably still flowing. Probably not as great as it normally does, but it's probably still flowing. Right? So they probably have water. 
And some would say, well, it's costly, though, to waste that water. Well, King Ahab is probably willing to spend this water if it means that Elijah can be made out the fool that he thinks he is. Then he can cut Elijah down, kill him, and appease Baal, and then the rain would come. Or maybe they got the water from the sea. They are near the sea, so it's possible that they just got it from the sea. Or Mount Kalmar is a lush area. That area might have been spared some of the severe effects of the drought, hence why they are meeting there, Elijah knowing he would need water. Maybe it's one of the few places that still has water. So they have water. They put it on the altar. And of course, if you know anything about how fire and water work, that water, a wet, wet wood, does not start very well. So what does Elijah do now? Now that everything's ready, it's the time of the evening at sacrifice, what does he do? Does he sing a perfectly choreographed praise song that has a spontaneous break for instruments to perform, timed with the dimming of the lights, to allow the Spirit to move among the people, to really feel the presence of God? This is it, guys. We're just going to we're just going to allow the guitar, we're going to allow the synthesizer to go, and it's just going to be you and God, this is a special moment. No, he doesn't do that. Does he rave like the Baal lunatics? Does he engage into holy laughter, starts giggling as the Holy Spirit takes over him? No. Does he start to shake, tremor? Does he speak in tongues? Does he start to speak in this prayer language? That by speaking in this prayer language that no one else can understand, God can know, and because it's a prayer language that just comes to him, God will hear him because of this prayer language. No. What Elijah does is what every other man and woman of God in Scripture does when in need. It's the same thing over and over and over again. He prays, and he prays simply. Let's read what he prays. 1 Kings 18, verses 36, 37. At the time of the offering, the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now note, typically when you read this in the Old Testament of God, God of Abraham, Isaac, it's usually God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel is the other name for Jacob. And it's almost like Elijah is doing this on purpose, calling to mind, bringing the people who are hearing the prayer into the prayer. Right? This is your God, Israel, that we're praying to. Who's going to respond? You're God. You need to consider this. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah offers a short prayer with confidence, not prayer full of many words, secret languages, secret key code words, nothing like that. He prays the two basic things that every prayer, that if you pray on, with these motives, it will be answered. Maybe not the way you want it to, but it will be answered. He prays that Yahweh would be glorified and that Yahweh's people would be edified. When Yahweh is glorified, those, are who, are who, those who are his people who see Yahweh glorified, they are edified. Anytime we come to God, we see his glory, know his glory, um, experience his glory, we are edified. And anytime we are edified in the truth of God, he is glorified. So they play into one another. And this is what uh, Elijah's prayer is rooted in. It's not that long. Bear, the prophets of Baal spent all day. They cut themselves. They're going to have scars from this. Well, they're not going to live from this, as we're going to see in a moment. But they cut themselves and nothing. No one answered. And here, all Elijah has done is offered up a few sentences. No magic tricks. No secret knowledge or insight. 
Right? You just need to be looking for the miracle. You just need to take that prayer request and put it in a circle and then pray for it. Or you just need to know your Enneagram. And I saw this at Barnes & Noble. This is an Enneagram book that based off of your Enneagram, this is how you pray. This is how you get God to respond to you. If you don't know what Enneagram is, great. Keep it that way. Stay away from it, though. It's not a personality test. It's rooted in New Age cult. It, it, it's, it's paganistic. It, it, it's it's uh, heretical. It, it probably has some demonic background to it as, as well. Have nothing to do with it. You want to know who you are? Read Scripture. If you want to know who you are in Christ, read Scripture. Enneagram is not going to solve any spiritual problems in your life. Christ is. The Holy Spirit will. His Word will. So have nothing to do with it. Elijah has no special background music here, right? He doesn't have anything to get the mood right. Just to, to he doesn't change the ambiance of the place. He doesn't change the lighting. He doesn't say that he waited until sunset to get the mood right. He doesn't have fog machines. He doesn't have angel dust falling from the ceilings, right? He's not trying to make it to where the spirit will feel welcome here. Like, we just need to make it more cozy. We just need to adjust it, and then, then we'll feel the presence of God here as, as if that's what we need. We keep the lights on in here for a reason. One, we want to see one another. And the Spirit, I mean, Spirit's not afraid of light. I mean, he, Spirit is light. Not afraid of darkness either. Anyway, he doesn't do any of these things. He prays simply with faith and an appeal to the will of God. Because of that, Yahweh responds, and he responds with quite the heat. Everything's consumed. It's one thing, I mean, that's a lot of water, right? I mean, three and a half gallons in the trench. I mean, if you apply enough heat consistently, yes, we would think eventually that the water would boil off and evaporate, right? But it's not just the water, it's the stones. The stones themselves, the 12 stones that represent the tribes of Israel, were consumed, left to ashes. I mean, if you want to know how much heat that is, try to, next time you have a fire pit, try to burn a stone to ash. Don't burn the neighborhood down. Put it in the middle of the fire pit and see if you can get it. It, it. It's going to take a lot of heat. But God does that. This leads to the people of Israel, at least for a moment, at least for this chapter, confess Yahweh is God, not Baal. Elijah then commands the people in accordance to Deuteronomy 13, hey, they're false prophets. By the law of God, kill them. And they chase them down and they slaughter, they mortify these false prophets. They mortify the idolatry within their presence. And then once the slaughter is finished, Elijah prays again. In verses 41 through 46, we have the epilogue, so to speak, of our event. Elijah goes to Ahab says, hey, Ahab, you need to eat and drink. Ahab's probably fasting all day. This is a, it's not a, a regular special holiday, but by, by Elijah coming to, onto the scene, it's become a special day. So Ahab's probably fasting all day because he probably wants Baal to do his thing. So Ahab's commanded to eat. Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel. He prays. He, he has his head bowed between his legs. Again, this isn't his posture. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. Right? We've read other prayers of people standing up. So his posture, again, doesn't determine how effective his prayer is. His faith, his, his faithfulness in Yahweh does. His motives for the prayer does. He prays. Verses 43, 44, he has his servant go multiple times to see if the rain's coming. And it takes seven times for uh, the servant to go. On the seventh time, the servant sees the rain. Elijah says, Ahab, you need to go. After a drought, the land becomes hard. Land's not ready to receive water. 
So in, in this rain, it looks like a dark rain cloud. It looks like it's going to be a massive onslaught of rain. So he tells Ahab, hey, you go to Jezreel. Meanwhile, Elijah, in the power of Yahweh, beats, Elijah, uh, beats Ahab to Jezreel. Jezreel is 21, 22 miles away from Mount Carmel. So Elijah on foot it runs out ahead of him by the power of Yahweh. Elijah is a traveling man. We've seen this already. Chapter 17, verse 1, goes to Ahab, brings the drought, goes hide east, east of the Jordan. And then he's brought to Zarephath in, the, in, in Phoenicia, just south of Sidon. And then he's brought down here to Mount Carmel. Next week, he's going to be in Judea. And he's going to spend 40 days, 40 nights walking straight. So he's, uh, he's an avid traveler, and apparently he's pretty good when Yahweh gives him the power to do so. Thus, the grace of God returns upon the land of his people. Having, with his people, having dealt with their sin, with their idolatry, God once again opens the skies and allows the rain to fall. So back to our original question. How are we able to know and experience the grace of God firsthand? Right, and I want to be clear here. This isn't primarily about saving grace, right? Though it could be if you are outside the kingdom and you're, and you're wondering about this. But if you are saved, this is about experiencing his daily blessing of assurance, about experiencing his presence, his joy in your day-to-day -day life as we are called to experience as believers. Remember, God's, pe uh, God's people, Israel, they, they were still part of the covenant. We, his people, as part of the new covenant, when we are saved, we will always be saved. We cannot lose that. But you can lose confidence. You can lose. You can have doubt come into your life if you harbor sin, if you harbor idolatry. So what must we do so that we don't have those doubts, that we can have the joy that we're called to have? Well, we must do what they did here. We must stop limping between two different opinions. Some of you are unable to feel, better yet, know the grace of God because this is exactly what you're doing. You're limping between two opinions. It's as if you think you can have your foot in the plane that goes to heaven and the foot on earth and still be in the plane when it takes off. That's not how it works. You're going to be sucked out of the plane. You're going to fall off. You're not going to be with it. You have to have both feet in it. We can't be limping between two worldviews, in essence, between two gods, whether it's the God of Israel or the gods of your lusts or your insecurities or your passions. We have to remember, as Israel had to remember, that our God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the great Shema of the law. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with God, with all, excuse me, Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then the first commandment, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? You know what that means? No other gods, no other idolatries, not only before him, but next to him. Do not think that you can share the throne of God in your life with something else or anyone else. We have to remember Yahweh is our safety, he is our comfort, and he is our satisfaction, our ultimate sources for those things. But yet, some of you, despite knowing this, you struggle in experiencing and knowing these truths. And again, it's the same reason the people of Israel experienced the drought as long as they did. Three years, six months, no rain, no grace of God falling upon them. Because they failed to keep from idolatry. 
They tolerated their iniquity. They tolerated their sins. And until they mortified those sins through confession and literally mortifying the priests, God withheld the reign of his grace. And if you're thinking, well, what about the end of Romans 8? It says that, God, that nothing separates us from the love of God. You're right. But God brought the drought out of love for his people. To be in the love of God, to be loved by God, is to be disciplined by God. He does it for our good. He does it for our holiness. Listen to these verses about how God responds to those who choose sin and idolatry in their lives. Psalm 66, 18, Psalmist writes, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had harbored it, if I had allowed that prophet of Baal to take residence in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Right? If I prayed and I have sinned that I know in my life and I'm holding on to it, my prayers aren't going to be answered. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, the sovereign will of God is not limited. All right? Not even by your sin. But he chooses not to act. He chooses to hide his, the blessing of his presence, of his grace before you, because of your sin that you are unwilling to do away with. You harbor the sin. You keep Baal in your life. You have that house idol in your life that you continue to worship, that you continue to tolerate. A life that harbors sin and idolatry and yet prays to Yahweh and seeks his grace is a double-minded life. James 1, verses 6 through 8, talks about this. James says, Let him ask in faith, he's talking about prayer, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is the people of Israel. Whoever came along as king, whatever religion they wanted to follow, that wasn't Yahweh, they followed. They weren't grounded in the word. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all, in all his ways. So when you harbor that sin, that idol, that prophet of Baal in your life, consider this. Is God not the one who delivered you from your sin? Right? Every time Yahweh came to his people to call them back in repentance, he always starts out with, am I not the God who delivered you from Egypt? Am I not the God who delivered you from the bondage of slavery? So why are you going back to Egypt? Why are you going back to these ways? So when we consider, has God not delivered me from a life of sin, why do I go back to that sin? Why do I go back to that way? Has he not delivered me from that? Has he not broken the chains? that sin had over me? Is he not the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to ransom you as his own? I mean, this is exactly what the Advent season celebrates. It doesn't celebrate capitalism or family traditions. As sentimental as the Christmas season can be, it's about Christ. It's about the Son incarnate. If you believe this, then why do you tolerate the lies that lead to hell? Why do you allow yourselves and others to limp through life between two worlds? You want to get your life back to where it's wholly devoted to God? Then you need to do what Israel did here in 1 Kings 18. You need to mortify the sin in your life. The sin that you know about. And the sin you don't know about, you need to pray God. You need to pray to God to have spirit convict me, make my ignorant sins known to me so I can mortify them too. 
And if you are faithful in this, you, this will be a lifelong process. It's like once you mortify one sin, then you see the dad of that sin. And you got to mortify his dad. And then you see the uncle. The uncle's there. It's just one thing after another. But oftentimes you don't see the other sins until you've mortified the other ones. John Owen, the Puritan, says, be killing sin or the sin will kill you. We need to slaughter it. Don't take the sin to an accountability group and be like, I've done it. I've confessed it to my brothers. They know about it. Well, great, but did you mortify the sin? Right? The power is not in the accountability group. Right? Where in Scripture does it say, confess your sin in the accountability group and be cleansed? Like, no, go to Christ. Go to Calvary. Go to the cross. Put your sin there. Allow the Holy Spirit to slay it for you. Allow the Word of God to slaughter the sin in your life. Chase it down by the sword of the Spirit. And as we know, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Mortify it. Take no prisoners. Right? You don't take your sin and say, well, I'm going to lock it up in this cage. It's in the closet. I know where it's at. I'll keep my eye on it. No. Like, do away with it. If the computer is leading you to sin, do away with it. If the internet is leading you to sin, do away with it. And if you say, well, I need this for work, well, either do away with your work or do away with it and ask the church, say, hey, I need access to a computer where I can be held accountable or I need help for an accountability program or, or I, I need... Since, since I can't access this on the computer, can you print this off for me? Can you look this up for me and then print it off? Like, use the body of Christ. Use your brothers and sisters. Do what's necessary. Again, I mentioned this before, right? Some of you are willing to lose your job over the vaccine mandate, but you're not willing to lose your job over holiness, right? Because you have this sin in your life, and your job leads you to cause that sin for whatever reason. And you know, boy, if I got rid of this job... It would probably help me mortify that sin, but I don't want to lose my job. Oh, vaccine mandate goes against my conscience. And I'm not saying you're wrong in that. I'm just saying you need to be balanced here. Right? You do one to be seen, and the other one, because no one sees it, you don't do it. You need balance there. Again, I'm not saying you're wrong in doing this with the vaccine thing. You just need to have balance in your life. You don't want to be a whitewashed tomb that Jesus calls hypocrites out in, uh, in the Gospels, the Pharisees that do that. So do what you need. Take your lusts, crucify them. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 5. Paul writes, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. This is not legalism. Obedience is not legalism. This is the will of God. That's what sanctification is. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You can't say of your sin, everyone else is doing it. It's common among man. Well, you're not a common man, a common woman. You're holy. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. Not me, God, right? God's talking there, right? He says that, First Peter says that in Deuteronomy. Be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. We don't get to act like the Gentiles, like non-believers get to act. Nor can we use them as an excuse. We control our bodies with a spirit of power and self-control, not one of fear and timidity. Take your greed, crucify it, Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Take your pride, your selfishness, burn it. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do not rest 
in what you do for the church. Right? God, this, God's saying, like, I, look, you built a temple, you built a place for me to dwell, so what? I made those things. I'm the creator of all things. I don't need anything from you. But you want my attention? You don't need to rave like a lunatic. You don't need to act like the prophets of Baal. You want my attention? This is, to, this is who catches my attention. Somebody of a humble spirit. Somebody who recognizes they have nothing to honor, to offer me. They recognize that I'm the creator. I'm the source of all things good. They can bring me nothing. They know who I am. And they're contrite in their sin. They're contrite in their heart. They're broken over the fact that they have rebelled and transgressed against me. And that they need deliverance. See, even King Ahab, we'll read about this in a few chapters. Yahweh says, Yahweh comes to Ahab with judgment. Ahab, for a moment, repents. And Yahweh's like, have you seen how he's responded to me? Have you seen how evil King Ahab is broken over this? And so God relents for a bit. So we must be contrite and humble before God. James sums this entire message up, chapter 4, verses 4 and 10 of his letter. He writes, you adulterous people, right? That's a good, warm greeting, right? I want to start the sermon with that. Hey, adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Be very discerning of the organizations, the hashtags, worldviews that you embrace for the sake of friendship, for the sake of world opinion. Be very discerning, lest you become an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever... Oh, sorry, verse 5. Do you, or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, you want the grace of God in your life? You need to choose today whom you're serving. You need to stop limping between two different opinions. You need to submit yourself to Yahweh. Submit yourselves, as James says, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You don't draw near to God, though, in pride. It's in humility, with a contrite heart, recognizing the only thing you're bringing to God is your sin, so that God can deal with it and deal with you. But we do so with confidence, knowing that he'll deal with us on the basis of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. James goes on and says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, as James saying, you must always walk around with a long face. Must you always be depressed over sin? No. You know, and this is an interesting cycle that we as believers, we go through. Our laughter ought to be turned to mourning. Our joy ought to be turned to gloom because of our sin. But the beautiful thing is, and this at times can be emotionally exhausting, that when we see our sin, yeah, we can't laugh. Our joy is turned to gloom. But we take that sin, we bring it to Calvary, we bring it to Christ, and we see what he has done, how he has dealt with it, and how he's faithful to us. Despite our sin, then our gloom and our mourning turn to laughter and joy. Again, but it's the right kind of joy. It's the right kind of laughter. It's the kind that persists through all circumstances and all afflictions. This is what we want. That's the abundant life. But that comes from God. So we must humble ourselves before him and he will exalt us. And in doing so, he will bless us. 
with his presence, with his grace, with his joy, no matter what comes. And when death comes, whether it comes quickly for you or slowly and painfully, you will go into that moment with confidence, with joy, with no doubts, not double-minded, not wondering what's on the other side. You know that Christ will be there. You know who you will see when you open your eyes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for allowing us to hear this account of Elijah so many years ago. We thank you that you gave him the courage, the boldness that he needed, the power of your spirits to do what he needed to do upon that mount. We thank you that you recorded it so that we, your people, would be able to read of it so many centuries later that we would be encouraged and edified by it. That we would be admonished to flee sexual morality. That we flee from any idol that's in our life, Father. Especially the big sins. Idolatry, sexual morality, greed, and so forth. But Father, allow us not to tolerate any sin in our life, big or small. Help us to mortify them. Help us to crucify ourselves daily and allow your spirit to live within us. Allow us to be filled by the Spirit as we live in obedience to your word. Sanctify us by your grace, by the washing of your word. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our idolatry, Father. We often wander when we don't want to. We are often fools when we know we shouldn't be. But Father, when we are faithless, you are faithful. So help us to recall the words of Romans 8 when Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from our love, that we are with you forever, that we, in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Remind us of that. Allow the devil not to whisper in our ears when we sin that we can't go back to you, that there's too much guilt, that we have taken advantage of your son too much. Help us to call to mind what Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 6, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Father, we thank you for that truth. So Father, in light of that truth, though we have sinned, we know we have an advocate before you, your son, Jesus Christ, who pleads for us. So Father, we ask that you bless the elements before us, the, the bread and the cup, that they would be gifts of grace to us this morning, that they would encourage us, that they would remind us of the truths of the scripture, that when your son went to the cross and died, he said it is finished, and that's exactly what it means. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for when we look to your son, when we put our trust in him. So Father, help us to rest in that truth. Help us to rest also in the truth that he is returning one day to set a table where we will have bread and wine with one another. And he will restore all things and the old ways will be gone and new ways will come and there will be a new heaven, new earth. This is going to be fantastic. But he's also going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. So help us to live faithfully. Help us to live wisely, shrewdly, holy lives to bring you glory so that when you come or when you call us home, we will be ready. And we can stand tall with confidence, not on our merits, but on the merits of your Son and in his faith and in his work. Father, we thank you for all these things. 
be with us, those of us who are struggling with depression, anxiety, despair, illnesses, those who are dealing with cancer treatments, those who are dealing with a, a Christmas season without a loved one, whether it's the first year without a loved one or the 20th or 50th year without a loved one. Comfort them. Encourage them. May we as a body reach out to one another. May we support one another. May we help each other to mortify our sins, to point sins out graciously, generously and gently. And when we do, Father, help us to be willing to walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ in that endeavor. May your spirit convict us as necessary. May it edify us as necessary so that we can glorify you in all that we do, Father. We ask all these things by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, Jared's going to come up and he'll minister communion. If you are a believer in Christ, now holding on to uh, 